This is the business of sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Who wants to be the sacrificial lambs that shows up at the first big major sporting event? We're part of something much bigger than sport right now, and the health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. And we're going to talk with Paul Rabel a little bit later on, guys. But before we get to that, and a subject that I know is going to come up with him, we got to talk about what has been going on this week. We knew it was going to be a big week in the world of politics. We had a Georgia runoff. We had the certification of the election. Uh, neither of those things, I think, went exactly according to the script. Uh, some unbelievably troubling images coming out of Washington, D.C., on Wednesday, uh, with the Capitol literally under siege, uh, it is under control, obviously, as we tape this on Thursday morning. But just a reminder of the backdrop that we're dealing with here, a global pandemic, and so many big questions around the future of this country. It's also a reminder, I think, if you think about politics, guys, that 2020 forever changed the relationship between sports and culture and economics and politics and maybe a little bit lost in all the headlines this week with the victory of Raphael Warnock over the incumbent Senator Kelly Loeffler. There was a sports angle. Let's remember what Candace Parker of the Los Angeles Sparks said about WNBA activism and specifically about the ownership of the NBA, the WNBA dream by Kelly Loeffler. I've said this a number of times. This is a league that is 80% African-American women. We talk about socioeconomic background, gender, women, black, socioeconomic, talk about sexual orientation. There's no place in this league. And I think we've had a number of people that have stepped forward and listened and have taken initiative and taken action. And we've had those that haven't and continue to make comments and show why we're still in this situation. And so I think a number of players in our league have expressed that that she's there's no place in the league for her. And the her and the she being referred to is soon to be former Senator Kelly Loeffler. As I mentioned, she is an owner, a co-owner of the Atlanta Dream. And notably, guys, we have to remember, I've paid very close attention to this, having grown up in Atlanta and still considering it my hometown. Kelly Loeffler came out very stridently against the Black Lives Matter movement. That drew a very powerful response from her own team that came out and wore Vote Warnock shirts And I think what is critical to remember, guys, is that Raphael Warnock was part of a big group of people trying to unseat Kelly Leffler at that point. There is very specific evidence that these players really drew a lot of attention to his candidacy and ultimately can be considered responsible for putting him in the Senate, the first black senator 
U.S. Senator from the state of Georgia will be sworn in uh, within days. And a reminder that uh, everything's changed when it comes to, to sports and politics, Lynchy. Well, it has. And uh, I think uh, Raphael Warnock had about a 9% chance of winning when this whole movement started. And Kelly Leffler uh, unwisely suggested that an American flag should be on the team's uniform as opposed to a little patch that says Black Lives Matter or Say Her Name. And um, 2020 taught us anything. It, uh, it gave athletes the courage to have a voice. And those voices have been heard. People are listening. It's a word we've used a lot over the last 12 months. But people listen, and people listened in the state of Georgia. And they're listening all around the WNBA right now. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if she is, Kelly Leffler is urged to, uh, to sell her 49% share of the Atlanta Dream. Well, and we saw that, Michael Barr. Uh, there's a potential buyer out there. Who knows whether this is where it's going to go, <laughs> yeah. but no less than the king himself. Uh, LeBron James tweeted, uh, who's in? I want to buy this team. Yeah, I saw this tweet, uh, and he tweeted this early Wednesday morning. He tweeted, I think I'm going to put together an ownership group for the dream, like you said, who's in. And I, I saw this, and I'm like, now wait, I, it is he for real about it, or is is this something that's going to go on? And then this story picked up steam, and as I'm reading more about it, it's like, yeah, I, he's serious. In fact, Los Angeles Dodgers star Mookie Betts, he uh, also jumped in with James on the thoughts of putting together an ownership tweeting, count me in. Yep, yep, and uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, response to that as well. And we should remind people, Baron Davis, who's also been uh, a guest on this show, he was rumored uh, back in October, I believe, to be putting together a group uh, for the Dream. I mean, you sort of, it's one of these narratives that you sort of can't make up. I mean, the Atlanta Dream, of course, is named as a callback to Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech, and Raphael Warnock is the successor in the pulpit, the pastor of Ebenezer uh, Baptist Church. He beat Kelly Loeffler. It is one of those things you can't make it up, guys. And and Lynchy, it does uh, occur to us, I believe, and you, you brought this up in in a conversation before we came on the air, activism continuing uh, in the NBA as recently as, as just this week. Well, you're right about that, Jason. On Wednesday night, the Celtics and the Heat had a game in Miami, and after their warm-ups, both teams went underneath the stands, and they met collectively for about 10 minutes, and they decided they would come out and take a knee during the national anthem to protest two things, the uh, uh, the surge on the Capitol and also the decision by the district attorney in Kenosha County, Wisconsin, not to press charges against the police officer who shot Jacob Blake. Um, shades of what we saw down in the bubble in Orlando with the uh, uh, Milwaukee Bucks uh, not playing one of their games. The Celtics and the Heat decided to go forward and play the game. They thought it would be best for the fans, but they wanted to make a loud, clear statement. So we're in a new calendar year, but a lot of things still remain the same. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that (sighs) any of this activism is going to be rolled back. And in fact, it may only accelerate as we go deeper into 2021. Today, just so excited, a timely conversation, as it always is, with our pal Paul Rabel, Premier Lacrosse League co-founder. He's a player, he's an activist, and Paul, I want to start there because this has been such a week. Uh, you know, we say that a lot in, in these days, but this one was difficult. 
you know, I wouldn't ask just any athlete this or any league executive, but you have been vocal around social justice. You've been vocal around, you know, the issues of the day. And I do wonder, how are you feeling this week? What What is it like to sort of take all this in, knowing what I know about you and, and how thoughtful you are? Yeah, well, it's great to be back on this show. It's it's you know, my favorite for, as I told you guys before, a couple of reasons. One is, uh, you know, this was the show that we were on when we announced the coming of the PLL. And then, mm-hmm. you know, two, I, I think it's uh, a phenomenal show that was first in kind of talking about the business of sports. And it's, uh, it's a dynamic industry. So thanks for having me. I, I think that uh, Jason, as I reflect on the last year into 2020, um, and I appreciate your introduction, though, I, I'm, I'm just uh, a co-founder of a professional lacrosse league that, um, you know, uses that, um, I think, that platform as an opportunity to share what we think is most important at our core, which is the uh, human rights of, of everyone. And uh, everyone plays sport, which is uh, um, a, a large indicator as to why sports leagues and, and athletes uh, across history have been such great advocates of, of, of rights and equality and reason and, uh, and exposure. Um, but if, if I think back on 2020, um, we were advocating for human rights, um, that of black people in America, indigenous people who are kind of the creators of lacrosse and Native Americans. We were advocating for people to wear masks and we were advocating for people to vote. Um, and I think that what we saw this week as devastating and sad and scary was just directly a, a capital siege. And, uh, you know, if you look by definition of what treason is, it's the crime of betraying one's country, especially by attempting to kill the sovereign or overthrow the government. And I think we've reached a place in our country where it has become so divisive that, uh, that we all have to look, um, you know, inward and uh, all of us looking inward for so many different reasons. Um, and that was kind of what I, I tweeted, it's like praying for public safety. Um, and of course, like protecting government officials, they're in a critical time of uh, the, the House getting back into session late and, and, and finally certifying the electoral votes for Biden and Harris. Um, but leadership needs to step up, public and private. And public, we know, is government officials, but private especially at this moment, those that sit atop of media conglomerates, social media organizations need to understand the fundamentals of truth and journalism and protection of harmful incitements that spread wildfires like this. And, uh, and so there's a, a lot to do. Mm. Um, and I think if we look at the history of, you know, our, our predecessors and leadership at the public level, um, it is more, it is more centrist and the, the understanding of, of left, the understanding of right is critical to to finding middle ground. And we find middle ground in sports. We find middle ground in relationships. And we find middle ground in public and private policy. Um, this is this is a jarring time, and uh, and I think that that was that, that that's that's where I sit here with you all. Yeah. Um, you know, at seven thirty on a on a in the morning on the West Coast, but having gotten little sleep uh, because of how I, I think traumatizing a lot of this has been. 
I was thinking about also to come off of that, uh, LeBron James. Uh, he mm. hinted at the ownership of a WNBA's Atlanta Dream. And I bring mm. that up because the uh, one of the owners, uh, Republican Senator Kelly Leffler, who lost her reelection bid, uh, sparked significant backlash for comments this summer about Black Lives Matter. Uh, what she said back in July, she said, I adamantly oppose the Black Lives Matter political movement. Uh, and I was just wondering, what are your thoughts about that? And I'm, I'm avoiding the political part of it, but just more about what you just said earlier about trying to take the divisiveness out of our society. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, we could, we could Michael, we, we could spend kind of hours talking about the history of, right. of politics and the evolution of even separation of church and state. And I, I, th- I think like, I, and I've said this for a while, uh, human rights, and social justice is, is not a political debate. Um, and yeah, I, I think that LeBron has done a phenomenal job as a leader in sports with the platform that he has. Um, but I, but I think about the w, WNBA athletes and their leadership and the success that the WNBA had a, as a business, from viewership to sponsors during a pandemic, when a lot of attention was was going to kind of the legacy leagues and their viewership declined. The WNBA was on an increase despite taking the strongest stance in advocacy for human rights and social justice, um, and. You know, we saw uh, now a, a, a senator of Georgia who was, you know, a, a 9% favorite getting to a runoff in Raphael Warnock. And I, I believe and kind of look at the, the data and the advocacy that it started at WNBA. Um, and it was, it was closely attached to what you had called out, which was ownership for Atlanta and that kind of disengagement with the athletes in her league and and their unwillingness to accept that that ruling um and and of course that that makes its way up to lebron who's who's a leader across sports and and we ended up seeing you know a huge turnaround where now the senate's been flipped Hmm. because of athlete activism hey paul it's mike up in boston um you know, I was scrolling through Twitter trying to, to do a little research for this interview, and, and it's, I found something that really impressed me and kind of stunned me. They had a tweet about uh, social justice back in September, and he had 5 million impressions. Did you have any idea that, that your reach was that deep and that wide? Yeah. You know, I think that it, it's a tricky one. I, I appreciate you asking. Is, is I've, you know, I, I think as as a, a white male and a, and a white athlete, you know, there's, there are different roles that, that we take. And what I spent a lot of time on with the black players in our leagues and, and, and black athletes everywhere and uh, understanding the community and being on the ground level here in Hollywood and going to protests and is that, you know, what, what white men, especially white people need to do is, what's called have social standing. And that means uh, in a time where it feels sometimes peculiar or uncomfortable, uh, stepping up and advocating for oppressed people, 
um, that you are not and you don't know that experience that they have gone through and their lineage has experienced that uh, that you ask yourself, how could I let me step aside and maybe provide an opportunity for them to express their experience? Where actually social standing in the history of um, you know, kind of white privilege, as we've defined it, and I know that it has been used as as a threat or an insult, and it and it shouldn't be, um, is that white people need to talk to other white people, and that's where most of the groundwork and and uh, and call it. Um, change occurs. And that's at the systemic level. It's at the institutional level as well. And it's also where, if you think about the world and homogenous groups, like that's where there's, there's most understanding um, and sometimes most combat. So, um, you know, I learned one of the things is like, hey, uh, I, I've kind of grown up in, in the social and digital era, and um, I pay a lot of attention to efforts and results. But um, it, it, it can sometimes come off as um, sideways if, if you look at something as uh, important as diversity and inclusion and then try to tie a, a number of success to it. Um, so we're, we're certainly like happy that a lot of the advocacy we did during the championship series of our, um, you know, our pandemic bubble, uh, both across our, our network relationship with NBC and what we did on social was heard and, and was landed by, uh, um, on a lot of different size screens. Uh, but it, it's, it's core to who we are. So, Paul, we have talked a lot about a lot of stuff, a lot of deep stuff, but I want to get to some recent news that folks may have missed uh, in the flurry of the holidays, which is arguably – the biggest merger, the biggest sort of coming together acquisition in the history of lacrosse, the PLL, the MLL becoming one. Uh, how did this happen? This is a big, big deal. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, you know, and something that we talked about on the show yeah. back on October twenty second, twenty eighteen. Um, is that you know in, in our initial run, Mike and I, who's my co-founder, older brother, CEO of the PLL, our, our preference was to buy or figure out a way to work with MLL out of the gates because we we put a lot of value in our analysis on existing IP and 20 years of games. Uh, we couldn't come to that conclusion, but behind the scenes there have been conversations, and I think it, I think it it, it cuts two ways. Um, we of course believe in our model and the progress we've made of the sport, but at the same time we also had to prove that progress to come to a deal that both parties felt was, was equitable. And that progress we made since announcing on, on this platform was not just with a network in NBC, which the sport had never had that type of consistent exposure where you can actually build a rating system and then build out the commercial value of the business. But we hadn't put a ball in the net, rolled out teams, coaches, players, uh, bring on major sponsors. And, and so there was a lot of work our team has been able to do that and do that well. And I think the, the other piece is you know, we had a successful 2020 and a lot of pro sports leagues did not. Most were down 80%. And uh, we figured out a way to be up. And you can make an argument that, hey, we were a second-year league and there's a lot of room to grow and we should be up. But when you, when you drop tickets and on-site merchandise and, and youth events, that's a big hit to, to everyone. Um, but as you know, a, a business that is a, is considered by many to be a startup. And when you see startup leagues turn over, like the uh, American Alliance Football League to the XFL, 
well-funded Ebersol McMahon businesses and us be able to persevere. And then if you look at the other part of COVID as an accelerator for industry outcomes in the future, I think that that played a role in us getting together and figuring out a way to merge tuck business operations moving forward under the PLL and then be able to bring on a second expansion team, which is a founding member of Major League Lacrosse, and that was the Boston Cannons, where later this month will be rolling out their, uh, you know, not only their their updated team identity as Cannons Lacrosse Club as as the PLL's eighth team, but but also more about their coaching staff, expansion draft, entry draft, college draft, and so on. You guys made a very important and smart decision during this merger. And when I was reading about it, the PLL will retain the rights to all of the former MLL teams for future expansion considerations. That's very important because that's where the money is going to grow, expanding the entire league. Can you comment more on that? Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. So, Michael, you know, we we've spent a lot of time talking, and I, and I know like your almanac of sports history is as strong as anyone's. And we already do some things differently. We're tour based, so we're our season operates like NASCAR. Um, and then, at, at part and parcel of that, we we don't have cities tied to our teammates um, to try to support and enhance that tour based scenario where fans all over the country can support one of Val their favorite eight. PLL teams instead of feeling uh, uninvited if our original six teams were just in six cities on the East Coast. So that was difficult to digest. And as we look into the future, you know, of sports, does it head in the direction of trying to get to 32 teams, quoting the NFL, where that was where the NFL, you know, kind of the enterprise value always pointed to mathematically. But now if you look at the NFL or the NBA, the lion's share of value, and that's advertising dollars on television to sponsorship on site to you know jersey patch value, goes to your major market city teams with the best players in the world. And whether that's the games on Christmas Day in the NBA, All-Star, or playoffs, those continue to be amplified and enhanced properties where everything in between is kind of tacked on. So as I think about the future of sports, is it more towards talent density and building enterprise value from fewer, or is it a race to having more? Now we're positioned to continue to analyze that and, uh, and find our sweet spot. I don't know that lacrosse in the next five to seven years even has the capacity or attention or number of players to get to something as big as 30 teams or even 20 teams. But I do think expansion to 12, maybe even more, at some point um, in the future does make sense. But uh, so I'll say that. And the other thing related to the MLL teams that we didn't tack on, and, and I know there's, there are a lot of questions online. It's like, Hey, everyone, we're still in a pandemic and our kind of core principles of building this league is being financially prudent, prudent while being creatively reckless. And that balance seems like an oxymoron. I think we've done creativity well, but we had to maintain our finances here. So expanding to an eighth team and, and one doesn't mean we're ignoring the outlaws or the Bayhawks or uh, the lizards. We're certainly not. And in fact, one of the ways that I think about the future of 2021 is that while we're entering our third season at the PLL, we're armed with 20 years of MLL history. So we'll continue to show those highlights and tell those stories, coalesce statistics, um, honor, you know, kind of icons and hall of famers of, of pro lacrosse and, and potentially even tie that to merchandise from, from a business opportunity. So 
um, while we don't see those teams in play now, we will be seeing those teams. Paul, which cities will you be traveling to? Um, as you said, it's it's pretty similar to the NASCAR. There are no home teams. You will be uh, sort of on tour for the entire season. So what are the cities? So we haven't announced our, our 2021 footprint yet, um, and, uh, and that, that's coming later this month. Um, obviously, like, being mindful of the current environment, um, you know, we were the first team sports league in North America to announce the solution to the pandemic in our bubble back in May. And we did that on, on the Today Show as part of that, you know, call it cr- creatively reckless mentality, but I hate to say reckless um, in, in finding the solution that was created by our COVID-19 internal medical committee. But we had a direct access point to the White House uh, Task Force Sports Committee. We have a number of members uh, on our investor cap table who sit atop of the biomedical and healthcare industry. We're continuing to tap into both of those worlds to understand now the path to vaccination. Back last year in in April when we were working on it, it was the path to point-of-care testing, which, if you guys can remember, wasn't even available. You had to go to the hospital if you were symptomatic. So it was a much different world. So we're kind of understanding that in 2019 and 2020, if we're a summer sport, what can we predict June through September looking like? Um, How can we build a a season that's uh, malleable um, to uncertainty, but also, um, you know, structured such that we can kind of continue to commercialize the opportunity. So that'll be coming later this month. And um, yeah, we, we hope, and there are signals that point towards being able to, go tour-based again, and then if we have to pivot, um, we've been able to show and demonstrate the ability to do so. So, PR, I got to say, you know, we we talked a lot about the last year. We talked a little bit about what happens next. You know, you're a goal setter. You and Mike both, I know, are. You are also a disruptor. Uh, That's for sure when you think about whether it's the tour-based model, some of the stuff you've done in media. We talked a little earlier in the conversation about the uh, fervent use by you and the team of social media and and different sorts of platforms. You know, as you take stock, especially as you have this expanded empire, what's the sort of biggest learning that you have from building this business over the last several years that you will employ going into 2021? Mm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a great, great question. Uh I think about our days and our kind of our, at least the early stage of our career in, in entrepreneurship. Um, and Mike and I's uh, initial thesis of, of trying to get into industries where we can democratize opportunity uh, first started in, in the Gemco space, and then it moved into small business lending. And then I was able to convince Mike to come over and help uh, lacrosse players uh, find uh, some type of financial outcome in their careers and, and how do we do that from the ground up and top down. Um, what, 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 what we learned though, Jason, is that sometimes it's, it's better to be second in. And uh, there's a lot of inventors and creativity that's out there in markets. And sometimes, you know, that your, your audience isn't ready for it. And then in other times when you're first in, it's, it's really challenging to figure out what's right. And on the heels of this merger, you know, there's a lot of things that MLL did for the sport and for me too, it provided an opportunity to play. Um, and so there are a lot of learnings to answer your question. And we got to 
pick off a bunch from our predecessor. Um, and then there's continual learnings. And I would say in sports, the, 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 the biggest one, if you think about revenue, and you guys talk a lot about revenue tied to uh, the fan experience in sports, but what a lot of people talk about is the revenue shift. So you look at the history of professional sports to Major League Baseball all the way through even the NFL prior to the, to the, the kind of the golden age of the TV era. It was tickets first. Tickets were your primal source of revenue, then became slowly television, then sponsors, then merchandise. What you've seen is tickets really take a back seat. Media rights, we're looking at the NFL. They're likely going to secure a 10-year deal over $100 billion that's omni-networked omni and some exclusivity. So media rights is the, the front runner, and, and that's a kind of you, you see across all the legacy leagues. Then, depending on whether in your, you're in Europe or, or in the U.S., merchandise can jump sponsorship, but typically sponsorship number two, then merchandise, then tickets. However, what we've learned is you know, our economic model is different than the, the viewership model of success. And, and viewership in sports, and we've experienced this in all industries, entertainment, talk shows, late-night television, to sports – is it changes when people aren't in the stands. There's this sense of FOMO when you're at a game, knowing that you're there to watch it live, and then when you're watching it and seeing a full house, as it feels like you're watching something important. And while that isn't tied as much to the economic success of these enterprise businesses and sports, it has probably the biggest psychological impact. And so whether, you know, you're Tom Rothman, chairman of Sony Pictures, and trying to figure out the future of the theatrical business because Sony is one of the big five conglomerates left that doesn't have a streaming service, and you see Warner Media now announcing their theatrical releases to HBO Max, it's like when vaccinations and when we reach herd immunity and people feel comfortable going back to theaters and going back to Lakers games and PLL games, how quickly is that going to happen? And then what's that going to do to the viewership experience on television as well? So that's, the I think, the biggest learning and the biggest thing that we're looking at. Paul, I think heaven said, you know, I want to make this great lacrosse player who has a heart of gold. Hold my beer. There. Paul Rabel. <laughs> now go out there. No tripping. You've, you've got the heart. And Hold I've on. Did, did, can I just ask what? Did God say hold my beer? Yes, yes, okay, he did. I, right, he did. Just, it's just, not <laughs> non-alcoholic. Okay, I might add that, got too. It, got it. I, I bring it up. My beer. Yeah, I, I, I took it and drank it last night. <laughs> <laughs> I bring it up because I saw this and I, and I said, man, I'm going to bring this up. You started the Paul Rabel Foundation. Uh, 10 years ago, and it was all about helping children with learning differences. Uh, you, you have to expand more on that. I think this is a great program. Please tell the audience about it. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Um, I grew up with learning differences, auditory processing disorder, ADHD, um, dyslexia runs in, in my family as well. Um, and I've learned over time on the auditory processing disorder, one of the things that uh, Mike, Mike, Jason, we laugh about after these shows is how I'm so freaking long-winded, is part of my processing system is through audibling. So sometimes, like, I'm learning as I'm speaking. Um, but uh, I, uh, I had a lot of advantages uh, when I was younger 
on the athletic field that really helped balance low confidence in the classroom and helped me, frankly, uh, get through school and get opportunity to, to kind of where I am now. Um, and not all kids, especially those with severe learning differences, have that access to extracurricular programs. So when we turned around and my family started the foundation, uh, we wanted to first work with schools that specialize in that type of education. It's highly nuanced and, and nuanced at the funding level from learning difference to learning difference, whether it's on the spectrum of autism to dyslexia to something like ADHD or auditory processing disorder. Um, in many states, they're all lumped together in the public school system offering. So we looked at the private offering, especially for kids who, who needed that and families who needed that. And we wanted to first start lacrosse programs there to give them that same access point in extracurricular that I had. And then that quickly turned into a scholarship fund, realizing that it was difficult as it was for my family to get my sister into a school called the lab school in DC. Um, and so that, that was, that was it. And, um, you know, it's, it's difficult because nonprofits are as competitive as for-profit businesses. And, uh, my, my mother, who's our executive director has done a fantastic job of continuing to think critically and creatively around ways that we can continue to support our school partners. But there's a, there's a lot of amazing people doing much better work in, in the educational space. And, uh, we're continuing to learn and, and do our part to give back and, um, and maybe figure out better ways to, uh, to, you know, leverage, um, lacrosse specifically and that unique touch point. Um, but, but that's what we do. And, and you can find out more information at paulrigalfoundation.org. You made me smile when you said that you're learning as you're talking. I'm a newscaster. I, I do the same thing. I'm in the same boat. And it's like, and I'm learning stuff every day as I'm like, really? That happened here? It's like, okay. It's like, you know, the, the capital of Michigan is Lansing. Okay, let's go. So, <laughs> that made me smile. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, hey Paul, one of the great challenges uh, of, of, of a sport like lacrosse, it's a great participant sport, and you're trying to grow it as a spectator sport. And uh, I love a couple of the innovations you had last year, a shot clock, uh, let's see, a microphone inside the helmet to be interviewed during uh, the course of, of a game. Will those uh, travel along with you during this merger, or are there other things to come? Yeah, yeah, innovation's critical. I mean, like, just trying to take an objective look, which is the hardest thing when you're native to a sport, um, is how difficult it is to watch on television for those who aren't. And uh, it took me about, you know, eight years into my professional career to step back and say, oh, it, it actually is difficult to track the ball on, on a screen of any size. It moves really fast. Um, so one of the first things we did is we changed the, the, the ball color when we launched to optic yellow, which is the color that tennis association spent tens of millions of dollars to AB tests around a serve that goes over a hundred miles an hour on screen. They found that like an off color yellow green actually gets tracked better on a green surface. Uh, so we were like, well, people have already invested in understanding that let's change the color of our ball. We've shortened the field. We sped up the game and you know, you have to take again, innovation with, you know, the, the tentacles of, tradition and the sensitivity of tradition and you know have your head down and move forward and 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 frankly a, a lot of sports have gotten caught up in that at the olympic level where they refuse to change the fundamentals of the game for you know every four years greater exposure to four billion people on the planet and i refuse to be 
to uh, allow at least our sport, while I'm a co-founder of, of the league, um, be that ill-adaptive. So innovation is really important, enhancing the broadcast, especially as, as a newer league that can be more nimble, is working with our network partner. And uh, one of the things that you know, I know you guys talk about and, and we talk about a lot is um, you know, the future of sports betting tied to sports here in America specifically. It's, it's been tied to European sports for a long time and been a huge part of its success. But as we see now, like the 23rd uh, state uh, adopt policy um, and allow sports betting, um, it's a huge industry and will only continue to grow. And, and we were able to, during this pandemic, I think expedite the the approval and governance from the gaming operators all the way to the, the, the state national legislative approval level while sports were on pause. So we were able to kind of like jump to the front of the line, honestly. And uh, we got that approval and then we did a deal with DraftKings and um, that type of enhancement helps us not only engage and increase watch time for our core fans, but it also brings in net new fans. So expect us to be kind of at the forefront of integration, not only for sports betting into the games, but, but also, you know, athlete data. And uh, we're seeing that now take a turn, I think, for more exposure because of COVID. And right now it's on the wearable health side. The NBA just announced a deal. The NFL has done a deal where they're mandating their athletes wear it. PGA just cut a deal with Whoop. We did a deal with Whoop. Uh, but no one's yet to, like, integrate that player bio data to the broadcast. And it's complicated. It's expensive. Uh, there's a lot of approval. But those are things that I see the future of sports. And from an innovation standpoint, the broadcast enhancing that, that's where we want to continue to be. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since the kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Time for the number of the week. Okay, kids, huddle around the set because this is a good one. And it's one of my favorite numbers of the week along wow. the subject uh now i'm going to admit lynchy might have the advantage in this one. Oh, come on man <laughs> Jesus. okay after go on. nine seasons with the cleveland cavaliers tristan thompson who is now with the celtics uh is selling his home on oh, the God. uh ohio waterfront it's on the shores of lake erie uh, I will tell you right now, I'll give you the, just it's 6,400 square feet, more than that, in fact. Now, how much do you think this home is worth, at least is what he's asking for? Now, I, I'll be fair. I, I'll tell you, it's got five bedrooms, five full bathrooms, plus two half bathrooms, Spacious accommodation, including an owner's wing outfitted with a luxe bathroom, a walk-in closet, mm. a sitting area, and a balcony. Every luxury. This is on the shores of Lake Erie? Imaginable. On, yes, on the shores of Lake Erie. <laughs> yeah. hmm. Okay. Um, I should, so assume that's on the Cleveland side. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Good question. Good follow up. See, you're already better than I am at this game, Rabel. All right. Um, I, I I'll say eight million. Paul. Well, I mean it's a seller's market because that would have originally started a bit lower. Um, 
and I get the benefit of going two. So I'm, I'm going to go prices right here uh, and say uh, three and a half. Uh, see, oh, so I'm going to go prices right, so I have to undercut Paul. You're going to go lower? <laughs> yeah, I'm going lower. I'm going 3.2. Wow. You know, Lynchy. Lynchy's ridiculous at this. this. I think he has like some sort of weird real estate contact oh that my he's talking goodness. to all the time. $3.25 million is what he's asking for. And I thought when you said three and a half, Paul, wow. I was like, he's got this. Oh. And then Lynchy comes in. It's like, I'm going to go a dollar below you. This is what he does to me every week, <laughs> Rabel, by the way. Welcome to my yeah. world. But that, that, you know, that price is right logic didn't make any sense, too, either, Lynchy. It's like, why didn't you come in at one? You were giving yourself a, a you know, a, a $250,000 margin. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, right. That's a very right. good point. That's a very oh, good point. Man. I mean, pinpoint. Uh, I, I, but I, I, I sense Barr getting excited though when when you said three point five, and I said, "Well, he's got to be warm." And so oh, that's boy. why. Oh, I gave okay. myself away. Oh yeah. man! Oh man! <laughs> yeah. So. All right, PR, you're always a good sport. We really appreciate it. You're you're almost as good at guessing real estate as you are at playing lacrosse. <laughs> so, uh, just saying something. So, best of luck to yeah. you. Stay yeah. safe a out lot, there. A in lot Los easier Angeles. going second. Yeah. As I said, you know. <laughs> I know. So thanks for teeing me up. I appreciate you guys very much. All right. Thank you. Be yes, well, Paul. my friend. Thank you, Paul. So, guys, uh, Paul Rabel, love that guy. He's always up for it, including participating in our number of the week. But, you know, I was actually really glad to talk to him this week because given everything that's going on in the world, I have found him, and, and full disclosure, like, he's a pal, and, and I talk with him fairly frequently, He's a very thoughtful guy. I mean, this is the this is the modern athlete, the modern athlete entrepreneur uh, in many ways, and you can just tell how holistically Lynchy he thinks about everything. You know, the the notion of being like it's one thing to be a player coach; it's a whole other thing to be a player commissioner owner entrepreneur. Yeah, and he's so good at every one of those things too. Yeah. I mean, he's he's got uh, his head on a swivel. Uh, nothing surprises him. He's he's a sensitive guy. Um, you know, he talked about um, you know being a, a white guy and just uh, not being not being in the shoes of, of of a black person during this whole Black Lives Matter thing. And he gathered all those guys together, and I was impressed. I mean, they made five million impressions on uh, on uh, on Twitter. When that little bubble they had when they played in Utah, I think was it most yeah. of most of the summer. And um, you know he's, he's he's he can talk he can talk a television broadcast, he can talk TV rights, he can talk sponsorship. He's on the phone with the president of Sony Entertainment. What can what can he do? He, it, 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 there's, there's not there's little he he cannot do. Bar you, I mean you've been as he mentioned. I mean we have a longstanding sort of journalistic relationship with him. I mean. Yeah. Bloomberg Business of Sports really broke the news back in the day um, in the Sashnik era of uh, of this whole thing happening. So you've seen it evolve from the beginning, and it's interesting to see the, the twists and the turns in some ways. It, it really is. It's Like you said, I, I was there at the beginning, and it, I just like watching Paul and Mike take a lump of clay, and they've molded it, and they've done all this to create – First of all, what was the PLL, and then to have this merger come in yeah. with the with the MLL, I think, my goodness, now this can really take off. And that's why I always thought that it was smart that they kept the rights to all the former MLL teams to for the expansion considerations. Who knows where that can go?
Yeah, no, it's uh, it's only getting bigger and bigger, and I think their success in pulling off the bubble last summer, you know, they very cleverly were able to use the Olympic window, actually, from a broadcast perspective. So, you know, some viewership and, and some fans coming in there, and as you say, this combination, you know, becoming the league, the pro league for lacrosse. Uh, sky's the limit for sure. Well, you've been listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcast. Catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Jason Kelly. You can find me on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. And I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me at Lynchy WCBB. And I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world.